Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Good morning, church. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. What a fun little message called the crushing weight of sin this morning. And I got to tell you, this message has been kicking my rear all week. See, you guys get off easy. You get about 40, 45 minutes of this. I study this all week long and God deals with me. So when I'm preaching, I'm not preaching at you, I'm with you. Oftentimes I wish I could just come sit down with you because I just feel like, oh, I need it worse than you do. So, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 26. We are continuing in our series on the life and times of Jesus. And if you remember where we left off and have been for months now is in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. We left off on the very night of his arrest and the very night before the crucifixion. And we left off with Jesus having the Passover meal with his disciples in a second-story room somewhere in the upper city of Jerusalem. And as we looked at this night, if you guys remember back, it's been months now that we've been up in the upper room and studying this. We talked about the Passover meal and how for thousands of years that it pointed to Jesus as that final sacrifice for sin. And then we saw Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper or communion, which we have here up front every single week. Then we spent some time talking about the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is giving some kind of final instructions to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And then more recently, we spent a few weeks talking about Jesus's high priestly prayer, where God the Son is praying to God the Father for his disciples then, as well as his disciples now, meaning he was praying for us on that very night. Now, where we pick up is with Jesus and his disciples leaving the upper room. I know we've been in the upper room for months now. You're like, what, we got to leave now? Yes, we're going to leave the upper room this morning. They get up after this Passover meal and all of those things that we've been studying. It is nighttime. And we pick up in Matthew chapter 26 with verse 30. Just look at verse 30 to begin with. It says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they get up, they leave. But before they leave, they sing a hymn. And the Passover meal, the Seder, always ends with the singing of Psalm 115 through Psalm 118, even to this very day and for thousands of years at the end of the Seder, at the end of the Passover meal, they would sing Psalm 115 through Psalm 118. We're going to look at the end of Psalm 118. And as we do, you don't have to turn it, it'll come up here on your screen. I want you to keep in mind that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover, right? We studied that. The whole thing was pointing to Jesus. And for centuries, these guys have been singing what we're about to read. And it was all about this very night as Jesus now leaves the upper room. And it says there in Psalm 118, verse 14, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has 
become my salvation. Then it goes on to say in verse 21, I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. Again, this is all about salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, which we know is a very, very messianic verse. Verse 23 says, this is the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in that. I hear people say that all the time. Like this is the day that the Lord has made. They repeat that. It's not about today. It was about this day. He was talking about a very, very, very special day. So he's saying, this is a special day that the Lord has made. And it is worthy of us rejoicing. O Lord, do save. We beseech you, O Lord. We beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is our God. Now look at this. And he has given us life. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Did you guys pick up on that? For thousands of years, these guys have sung about a day, a special day that the Lord has made, meaning it's God's perfect timing. It's going to have something to do with salvation. One that the Lord's going to send is going to bring salvation, but it's going to require what? The binding of the festival sacrifice with cords. And on this very night that we're talking about in our text, as Jesus is arrested and goes to die for the salvation of all humanity, it says in John's gospel that a Roman cohort and the commanders of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. You see, what that means then is that in the next few months as we're going through the passion of the Christ, this is not a good plan gone wrong. This is God's perfect plan in God's perfect timing to provide a perfect sacrifice that is complete and covers our sins. And they've been singing about it for centuries. So they leave now the upper room and they begin to move towards the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. We've got this little map here. It's not all that helpful. But if you look at the, I know, you're like, why did you get it then? I don't know. I like maps. So if you look at where the Red Star is, that's the upper portion of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. That's where the the upper room would have been, I don't know which house it was. We just put a red star up there. You can pick any house and imagine that that's it. The blue star is the Mount of Olives on the other side of the Kidron Valley facing the temple there. And that's where Jesus is headed to a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, I don't know which path he took to get there. There's about three gates he could have walked out of to get there. And from what I have studied, pretty much everybody doesn't have a clue. So I don't know how he got there, but he went from red star to blue star. And as he was going, he began to speak to his disciples. And he said this, if you look at verse 31 now, Matthew 26, 31, as they were walking, when Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. 
But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Now this is the second time, if you guys remember back to the beginning of the Passover, that Peter has said this, right? This is the second time that Peter has swore that he's going to stand with Jesus in his darkest hour. And this is the second time that Jesus has assured him that he will not and that he will be abandoning Jesus before the rooster crows. The first time was at the very beginning of the Passover meal. It now happens again at the end. So we have this exact same exchange. And of course, what we're going to see is that Jesus is right. And it says there in verse 36 that they come now to the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane. We're going to read for a little bit here. Verse 36, then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved, notice that, and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples, he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and he prayed, saying, My father, if it cannot pass away from me, I drink it. Your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and he left them again. And he went away and he prayed a third time saying once again, the same thing. Now, there's obviously a whole prayer element here. We're not going to get to that today. We're going to wait and talk about it next week. I feel that it warrants an entire Sunday to talk about what's going on here in this garden in prayer. What we're going to focus on this morning, so we'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane for the next couple of weeks. What we're going to focus on today, this morning, is Jesus' distress in this agony, this cup, as he puts it, that he was so distressed about in the garden and the weight that he was under in this moment. If you look at verse 37, it begins to tell us a bit of the picture when it says that Jesus took Peter and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, right? Jesus is here saying that there's so much weight and so much strain on his soul that his physical frame is in danger of collapse. The weight here on Jesus is so heavy 
that Luke's gospel adds that divine intervention was necessary to keep him from collapse because it says there in Luke 22, 43, now an angel from heaven appeared to strengthen him. And the, the state of distress that Jesus in caused him then to go and pray three different times. And at least one of those times, the first time that he went off to pray, he prayed there for an entire hour. We'll talk about that next week. But then it even gets more graphic. Because Luke's gospel adds another whole dimension to the anguish of Jesus when it says in Luke twenty two forty four, it says, being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Jesus began to sweat blood. It's a physical medical condition called hematidrosis, where under the greatest of strain and emotional stress, that these tiny little capillaries within our sweat glands begin to rupture, and the blood then mingles with the sweat. And so Jesus is in such agony in this moment that he's literally sweating blood. This is heavy, guys. We need to grab a hold of how heavy this moment is in the garden. But the question for us is this. What is this weight? What is this cup that Jesus so dreaded? What is causing this great anguish and distress within Jesus? Many have made the mistake of thinking that it was a fear of physical pain or a fear of a physical death that Jesus knew was to come, right? He's already told his disciples that he's going to be put to death. He knows the manner of death that is coming. And some people will say, well, because he knew of that, therefore he is so distressed. But that's not accurate. It's not about the physical pain or death. Because would that not make Jesus weaker than many of his followers? Because for centuries, we have read of Christians going to torture and going to death all the while praising God and singing hymns. If you read church history, you can read countless times that Christians have been burned at the stake or beheaded or thrown to the beasts in the Colosseum. And as they got there, they had a smile on their face and they're singing praises to the Lord as they face their doom. If it was just about the pain, that would make Jesus weaker than his followers. Here's the more important part of that. If it were just about the pain, it would make the greatest suffering of the crucifixion physical. when the greatest suffering of Jesus' crucifixion was spiritual. You see, the reason that Jesus is in such great torment in the Garden of Gethsemane was because he knew that he had to pay the price for our sins, therefore he had to bear our sins. And when our sin was placed upon him, it would mean that he would then be separated from the Father. Church, this is incredibly important for our theological understanding of the cross and of the gospel. 
If we miss this, we'll never rightly understand Jesus and his sacrifice. The reason that Jesus is in such distress and agony is not because there's a coming physical pain or death. The reason that Jesus is in such distress and agony is because he fears and he dreads the coming separation from God the Father. He's the second person in the Trinity. He's God the Son. Jesus has lived for all eternity past in perfect communion with God the Father. There's never been a separation. There has only ever been loving unity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus took our sin upon himself, God the Father turned away from him because our sin upon him created a separation for the first time between God the Son and God the Father. Let let me explain a little further because some of you guys look a little confused. God is holy, absolutely holy. And that word holy literally means separated. That God is separated because he is holy from anything sinful. It means that God himself is only pure and good. That's why John said in 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Because God is is separated from anything that is sinful, he is then what? Separated from humanity. It says in Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities or your sins have made separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Because we are sinful, we're separated from God, correct? That, that leaves us then lost with no way to help ourselves on our own. He is holy, and He can't be approached by a sinful people. Church, that's why we need a Savior, is it not? Someone that can do something about our sin. Someone who can bridge that gap so that we can be restored to that relationship. But here's the problem. The atoning and the removing of our sin required that our sin be placed upon and paid for by Christ. If we miss this, we miss the the whole crux of Christianity, that our sin was taken and placed upon Jesus. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And then in 1 Peter 2, 24, He Himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we are healed. Or Colossians 2, 13 and 14 said, you were dead because of your sins because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made him alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins and he canceled the record of charges against them and took it away. How? By nailing it to the cross. But how did he nail our sins to the cross? In the person of Christ. He was literally carrying our sins as he was nailed to the cross. And it was prophesied some 700 years earlier in the book of Isaiah when it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore. 
and our sorrows he carried, yet ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquity, and the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. That means we're all sinners. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused what? The iniquity or our sin of all of us to fall on him. And when Jesus took our sin upon himself, God the Father turned away from him. And there was, for the first time, a separation. Separation with God the Father. And Jesus was separated from God the Father for the last three hours that he hung on the cross. And during that time, Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself, the wrath that we were supposed to, my wrath, your wrath, that we were supposed to endure. And that's why as Jesus hung on the cross, it says in Matthew chapter 27, it says, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. But about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Ele, Ele, lama sabatani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or why have you turned your face from me? Why have you abandoned me? You see, at that very moment, Jesus is experiencing the abandonment and the separation from the Father as the wrath of God is poured out on Him as He bore our sins. Jesus took the wrath upon Himself, paying the price for our sins so that we could be set free. Now here's the key to it. It was that coming separation between Jesus and God the Father and the weight of bearing our sins upon Himself that caused Jesus so much agony in the garden. That's what it was. He wasn't scared of the physical pain. He wasn't scared of the death. It was the separation from the Father and it was the bearing of our sin. Now, with all of that said, Jesus' great agony in the Garden of Gethsemane should give us then as a church a sense of how horrific it is to be separated from God. If He's sweating blood over it, it should give us a sense of how horrific it is. See, we don't naturally have a sense because we're born with a sin nature. We start out without a personal relationship with God. That's what David was talking about in Psalm 51 when he says, for I was born a sinner, yes, from my, the moment my mother conceived me. And the Bible goes on and, and clearly teaches that all humanity has been infected by Adam's sin when it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone has sinned. And so we come from a place of separation from God, right? And it's not until our eyes are opened through the gospel that we understand what it means to have a relationship 
with God. Finally, as we come to Him and we surrender to Him, we start to develop that relation. We, we learn what it means to have a relationship with God. But Jesus is the opposite of that. He's only ever known perfect unity and unbroken relationship with God the Father. And while we know some of what it means to have a relationship with the Lord after we're saved, we got to remember that Jesus knows the fullness and the depth of relationship that we don't know yet. Therefore, don't miss this, Jesus' agony over separation with the Father should reveal to us how horrific it is to be separated from God, but at the same time, it should reveal to us how amazing it is to have relationship with God, you see. Guys, this scene in the garden should have a profound effect on us. It should give us a heart for the lost and those that are now currently separated from God. And at the same time, it should remind us how precious and amazing it is to have a relationship with the creator of the world. We ought to be in awe and we ought to be captivated by the privilege that we have 24-7 access to. To the creator of the universe, God Almighty, who made everything, knows everything. We ought to be in awe. So so let me ask you, are you captivated? Are, Are you in awe of a relationship that you can have with the creator of the universe? I mean, are you spending time with the Lord like a person that is captivated and in awe? Or, like many of us, are we neglecting that relationship a bit? Are we apathetic to God in that relationship when we should be amazed, when we should be in awe of the fact that we can have a relationship with God? Furthermore, when we see Jesus' agony over this, It reminds us that the worst thing in the world is to be separated from God. You see, most people's greatest fears are what? Pain or disease or death or something like that. But far worse than any of that is to be separated from God. That, that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, he says, don't fear those that can kill your body and aren't able to kill your soul. So don't worry about anybody that's going to hurt you or even kill you. That's not a big deal. You worry about God because he's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is often misunderstood a bit, even within the church, on what hell is. Hell is the permanent separation from God and His goodness. See, when you say hell to most people, what do they think about? They think about a lake of fire. They think about darkness. They think about pain. They think about suffering, gnashing of teeth, and all those things. All those things are biblical, and all those things are true. But they're not the greatest trauma of hell. The greatest trauma and the greatest shock of hell is that it is completely void of God and His goodness. It's a permanent separation. 
let me explain a little further. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says this. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That means that all goodness is in God, right? Anything that we experience that's good in this life is from God. And in this world and in this life, we all experience the goodness of God. Friendships that you have and that you cherish and that you enjoy. Those are capacities that God has given you. That's goodness from Him. The love that you have with your spouse and your kids, that's goodness from God. When you go out and you look at a beautiful sunset or the mountainside or the ocean and you're enjoying it and it brings joy to your heart, that's goodness from God. It's called common grace though because you don't have to be a Christian to enjoy the goodness of God. Anybody can go out and enjoy a sunset. There's a lot of people that don't believe in Jesus that enjoy love with their children and their spouse and so forth. They enjoy common grace. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy the goodness of God or the creation of God. In fact, Jesus said that that God causes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends His rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Meaning, they get sunlight just like the Christian do. And they get rain for their crops and grass just like the Christians do. That's common grace. And Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 tell us that this common grace is supposed to point humanity to God. That it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance and and salvation. And then what God does is God gives us His Word, the Gospel, to explain then exactly what we're experiencing. To explain who He is and how we can have a relationship with Him through the blood of Christ. So God uses then common grace coupled with the gospel to show the goodness of God in an effort to lead us to salvation, right? You guys still with me? Anybody get lost there? Okay, good. But when someone rejects both the common grace and goodness of God and the gospel of God, and they say, I don't want God, and they spend their whole life going, I don't want God. I don't want God in my life. I don't want God in my life. I don't want God in my life. When they die and step into eternity, all God does is confirm their choice. He says, okay, you don't want me. You don't want me. You don't want me. You don't have to have me. Church, that's what hell is. It's a place that is void of God and his goodness. And it is a total and final separation from God. Heaven is the opposite of that, is it not? It's the fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord, right? Just like those that are going to hell don't know exactly what hell's like because they've experienced common grace for so long. We don't even know what heaven's like because it's so much better than we can even fathom. Heaven is the fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord. And so it should then give us a real sense of how horrific this separation from God is when we look at the way that Jesus is absolutely crushed by the idea of being separated from God the Father. He's fearful. 
He's in agony. He's sweating blood because of this time that he's going to be separated from the Father. That should really say something to us about those that are separated. Jesus is being literally crushed in the garden over this. It's noteworthy and far beyond irony that this whole scene took place in a location called the Garden of Gethsemane. The the word Gethsemane means oil press. It's a place where olives were crushed to make olive oil. We've got a picture here. There's the garden. So when it says garden here, we're not talking about a flower garden. We're not talking about a vegetable garden. We're talking about an olive grove. And in this olive grove, there was what was called a Gethsemane, a place of crushing. And how this happened, we've got a couple more pictures here. There's a picture of a millstone. What they would do is they would gather up all the olives and they would put it in that channel that you see on the inside of that millstone. And then they would have the little donkey walk around and that giant rolling stone would crush the olives because the oil's not in the outside meat of the olives, it's in the pit of the olives. So the olives had to be crushed with great force. And then all of the goop that's been crushed was gathered up and put in burlap bags. And we got another picture. And then the burlap bags were stacked underneath that big pole. And then weights were added to that pole to squeeze down on the burlap bags. And then they would just stack more and squeeze them more and stack more and squeeze them more. And then it would run out of a channel and they'd have some sort of way to collect it in a bucket or something. That's the process of getting olive oil out. But it took a crushing. It took a Gethsemane. There is much symbolism then an imagery in the fact that in Israel, olive oil is a symbol of life because it's used for everything. It's also a symbol of light because it's used for the lamps like the menorah in the temple. And it is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit because it is used to anoint the vessels for the temple or the priests for the temple. And so just as there was no life, light, or anointing without the crushing of the olives, there was no eternal life, no light of the world, and no Holy Spirit poured out on humanity without the crushing of Christ in Gethsemane and then later in Golgotha. You see, when we look at the crushing agony of Jesus and what he went through, as he was about to take on our sins, church. Here's what I want to leave us with. It should give us a great sense of how heinous and revolting sin is in the eyes of God. When we look at the fact that Jesus is literally sweating blood over the fact that he now has to carry our sins, it should tell us, should it not, that in the eyes of God, sin is reprehensible. And it should change the way, church, that we look at and the way we think about sin. 
we should be very intentional and very serious about the way that we deal with sin, should we not? And this is the part that's been kicking my rear all week. Because so often we're not. Way too often, we don't take sin that serious. Way too often, we toy around with sin. We act like it's not that big of a deal. Or we come up with ways to justify it or make excuses for it. Or we dismiss sin by calling it by some other name. Oh, it's not really sin. It was an error in judgment, a slip of the tongue, an indiscretion or a moment of weakness. But when we trivialize sin, we stand in stark contrast to our Jesus who is agonizing over it and sweating blood over it in the garden. His agony and his sweating of blood says that it's a big deal to God and that it is atoned for at great cost. And so as we finish up, I want to suggest this. That anytime we start to think about our sin not being that big of a deal, that we should turn here to Matthew chapter 26 and read how Jesus feels about it. Anytime we make an excuse for it, we trivialize it, we think it's not really that big of a sin, it's not really that big of a deal, we make excuses or dismiss it. I suggest we turn right here and we see how Jesus feels about it. I want to finish by just reading Romans chapter 6 here in this passage about sin because I think it ties everything up well. Romans 6.10 says this, When he, Jesus, when Jesus died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Then the directive, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, Give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Lord, we come to you and every one of us confesses that we are a sinner. And we thank you and we praise you for the fact that you died for us, to set us free from the power and the penalty of sin, and that we will stand before our Father in heaven, clean and covered by the blood of Christ, and we praise you for that. That we're practically, as we stand before God, white as snow. But we understand also, Lord, that we still sin. 
And as that is true of us, we ask right now that you'd give us a sense as we read your word of your view of sin. As we see, Jesus, that you agonized in the garden over bearing our sin and the separation that it caused. Lord, give us a sense of it, that we would stop to toy with sin. We would stop trivializing it. We would stop making excuses for it. And we would turn from it. We would live for your glory. Lord, we ask that you would purify our church. Because a pure church is a strong church. Pure church is a usable church. We don't want to be a people, Lord, that come in here every week singing these songs and raising our hands and reading Bible verses all the while, winking at sin and acting like it's not a big deal. Lord, search our hearts and reveal to us the things that you want to deal with right now in us. That we might be truly usable by you in right standing before you, that our prayers wouldn't be hindered. Lord, would you come and purify us as a church now in Jesus' name. Amen.